Good morning. In case we haven't met, uh, as Mike said, my name is Kelly Scott. I'm an interim pastor for discipleship here at Trinity and a campus minister, a local mission partner of Trinity um, as a campus minister at the University of Virginia. I do want to add my welcome to you. I would love to meet you after the service if you are visiting and you have a moment to meet uh, in the back after the service. I do want to make a deal with all of you this morning. You may know that there's a little soccer game being played right now with about, I don't know, 3.6 billion people watching at this very moment. And as Providence would have it, it only conflicts with Sunday worship for a couple of time zones in the world, such as ours, Eastern Standard Time. And so here's the deal. You see, this afternoon, I will delight in the glory of God reflected in the beautiful soccer being played much more fully if I don't know what happens. <laughs> and so I won't check my phone after the service and tell you anything about the game if you won't check your phone after the service and tell me anything about the game, right? Can we, can we agree on this? No World Cup talk after the service. Can only talk about Jesus after the service. <laughs> All right. Well, more importantly, we are in the midst of our Advent sermon series entitled Awaiting the Shepherd. And the word Advent literally means to come to or coming. And so we call this season leading up to Christmas Advent because we remember that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the good and true shepherd of our souls. And just as God's people waited hundreds of years for this shepherd to come, and he came, so we wait and work and live in the promise that the good and true shepherd will come again and that he will make all things right. This morning, we're, we will be in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an interesting figure. Uh, many people don't know quite what to do with some of the dramatic things that, that God asked Ezekiel to do, such as building a, a small model city of Jerusalem and depicting a siege against it with bricks and iron pans, uh, or lying on his side for extended periods for 300 or 430 consecutive days as a sign of bearing the sin and punishment of his people. Whatever else we might say about Ezekiel, he is not lacking for dramatic punch. But I think we can understand the unique drama of Ezekiel's ministry when we consider that he lived in the most tumultuous time in the history of Israel. The drama of his prophetic ministry seems to match the, the turbulence uh, of his time. You see, throughout Ezekiel's formative years, the, the nation of Babylon was pressing in on his hometown of Jerusalem. Babylon had recently overthrown Assyria. Assyria had been the big boy on the Mesopotamian block for hundreds of years, and Babylon had recently overthrown them. And when Ezekiel was just 18 years old, training to be a priest in Jerusalem, Babylon invades the city and takes some captives from the royal family. This is when the prophet Daniel and some of his friends uh, were taken captive. Well, just eight years later, Babylon comes back, and they invade again, and this time they took 8,000 more people into exile, mostly political and religious leaders, including the king, Jehoiakim, as well as Ezekiel. Four years after this, the years 593 B.C., 
Ezekiel is now 30 years old. This is the year that he would have officially become a priest back in Jerusalem. God comes to Ezekiel in a vision while he's among the exiles in Babylon, near the banks of the Euphrates, over 600 miles from home. And for the next 20 plus years, God regularly speaks through Ezekiel to his people in exile. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. I would encourage you to read the entire chapter on your own. It's all printed in your order of worship. Uh, This morning, though, at least for now, we're going to read verses 11 through 24, uh, picking up at the top of page 9 in your order of worship. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddled with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. It's been about 10 years since I read Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield. Uh, So there are many, uh, many of the details are a bit fuzzy for me at this point. There are so many characters and subplots going on in this expansive novel. But there is one character I will never forget. Mr. Peggotty is this burly, bearded fisherman who has converted an old boat into a house on the beach. And he has taken in uh, uh, the widow of one of his friends. Um, He has taken in his niece, Emily, as well as his nephew, Ham. Uh, Emily and Ham are from different families, but both orphans. And Emily is, is graceful and pretty and sharp. And in many ways, she transcends her social standing. While Ham, very much like Mr. Peggotty, is the epitome of kindness and faithfulness and simplicity. 
And as they get older, Ham is unsurprisingly taken with Emily, and eventually Ham proposes to her, and the two are engaged. But right before the two are about to be married, sweet little Emily betrays Mr. Peggotty and Ham's faithfulness to run off with a wealthy, smooth-talking young gentleman to seek a better life as a lady. Well, Emily ends up getting burned by him, and she falls into disgrace and shame. They never marry. Of course, Mr. Peggotty is crushed by it. She has completely abandoned the family that loved her so well, and she's made them and herself look like fools. The one thing that I vividly remember throughout the novel, in the midst of all these other storylines, is that every time we run into Mr. Peggotty, he is relentlessly searching for Emily. All over London and all over Europe, he is relentlessly searching for her to bring her back from disgrace. I want you to hear his words. When asked where he's going, when he first sets out, he says, anywhere. I'm going to seek my niece throughout the world. I'm going to find my poor niece in her shame and bring her back. No one stop me. I'm going to seek her fur and wide. If she should come home while I'm away, but ah, that ain't like to be. Or if I should bring her back, my meaning is that she and me shall live and die where no one can't reproach her. If any hurt should come to me, remember that the last words I left for her was, my unchanged love is with my darling child, and I forgive her. Mr. Peggotty is a good shepherd. Do you know this morning that this is how the Lord sees you? Look again at verse 16 uh, in our passage where God describes what it means for him to shepherd his people. The Lord God says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God brings us back. He binds us up and he breaks the yoke of injustice. In verse 23, we see that God will accomplish this through a king or a prince from the line of the first good king of Israel, David, King David. Verse 23, we read, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. And this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the shepherd prince. He is the better David who brings us back, who binds us up, and who will break the yoke of injustice. And so first, the shepherd prince brings us back. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike uh, spoke of how the kings and ruling classes in the day of the prophet Micah, uh, they made life very hard for the middle and lower classes of Israel. They were greedy, they were selfish, and our passage says that the same thing was true a hundred years later, still true a hundred years later in Jerusalem. The king's did not seek out the lost sheep. The kings did not bind up the injured. And the fat sheep of the ruling classes bumped aside the lean sheep, muddying up their water and trotting on their food. And the Lord had had enough. And so in the immediate context of our passage, bringing back the sheep meant two things. First, it meant God saving Israel from their own wicked kings who were commonly described as shepherds in the ancient Near East. 
Verse 10, which we didn't read, says, No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Second, it meant God bringing back his sheep from Egypt and Babylon and all the nations where they had been scattered due to their wicked kings as well as their own idolatries. Verse 12 says, I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. And in the New Testament, and is, and is often hinted at throughout the Old Testament, we see that this ingathering of God's people, this, this rescuing and bringing back includes all the nations as well as the Israelites. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, in a passage where I think it's pretty clear that he had Ezekiel 34 in mind, Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. The shepherd prince bringing back his people includes all of us who belong to Christ, Jew and Gentile from every tongue and tribe and nation. And I want to ask you this morning in this Advent season, are you acutely aware that the God of the universe has sought you out and pursued you to bring you back into the relationship with him that you were created for? Is it deeply ingrained in the patterns of your thinking to remember that God has sought you out and pursued you in love? And that he is the one who continues to pursue us when we wander and stray and to bring us back into his fold? I ask you because I find it easy to forget. I find it easy to assume that I am the initiator in my relationship with God, to forget that I was running after him and that he came after me, <clears throat> to forget that he is continually the shepherd who pursues my wandering heart when I go to look for life in accomplishment or comparison or reputation or ease or pleasure or worldly security or the list goes on. He is the one who pursues continually my wandering heart. Even if you can't remember a day when you did not know Christ, God pursued you. He pursued you through his family, which is his primary means of pursuit. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives in you also. Beautiful. What an, enormous, what an enormous privilege it is to be able to look back and see that God has pursued you even from the womb. If you came to Christ later in life, the Lord may have had to rock your world a good bit to get your attention. That was true for Paul. He was blinded for three days. We get used to that. Oh, yeah, Paul was blinded for three days. That's scary. He was groping around the help of friends for three days. Throughout Paul's letter and throughout the book of Acts, we continually see Paul remembering God's pursuit of him. In spite of his pride and his violence and his blasphemy, his injury of God's people, Paul remembers God's pursuit of him. He remembers how God poured out his abundant mercy and grace on him. 
For some of us, God's pursuit was a combination of, of a family that loved us well and pointed us to Christ, as well as world-rocking events. In addition to a loving family where I heard the gospel, God used a broken leg and a broken relationship to open my eyes to his goodness and his power and his forgiveness and his sufficiency. Like me, perhaps you can relate to the words of St. Augustine in his confessions. He did not become a believer in Christ until late in his 30s, I believe. He says, late have I loved you. Beauty so old and so new, late have I loved you. And see, in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. For if they did not have, for though they did not have their, for as if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and now I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Augustine could see that God had been tracking him down, pursuing him, crying out to him, calling out to him. If you are not a Christian, I, I hope that you are encouraged by our passage as well. It, it's telling us that God does not play hard to get, but just the opposite. He is a God who runs after us. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, you will see God's holiness. You will see his purity. You will see our complete unworthiness of him, but you will also see his heart for us as he pleads with people to turn to him, to repent, to have life. For it says God does not take pleasure in the death of anyone. Check out Ezekiel 18. He desires for us to have fullness of life in him. He desires to be our shepherd. In many ways, th this story of the searching shepherd who brings us back, it, it's the story of all of Scripture. In the garden, when our first parents sin and rebel against God, and they see their shame, and they run and hide, it's God who pursues them, and he initiates conversation with them, and he initiates reconcilia reconciliation with them. When all of humanity is largely in rebellion against God, God searches out Abraham, who was worshiping idols, we're told, beyond the Euphrates, not too far from where we find Ezekiel. And God promises that through his offspring, through Abraham's offspring, all nations will be reconciled to God. God pursued Abraham, and he pursued all of us through him. When King David falls into sin, God sends the prophet Nathan after him. God pursues re reconciliation with him, and he leads David to repentance. David was not going toward him. God came after him. When Ezekiel and the other exiles are in captivity 600 miles from Jerusalem, in the very year, remember, that Ezekiel would have become a priest in the temple, the first vision that Ezekiel receives is this glorious temple-esque vision of the throne room of God flying on chariot wheels. It's this wild vision. And God is telling them, yes, my glory has departed from Jerusalem, but I am still with you. I am seeking you. And as we wait for Christmas Day, 
we celebrate the shepherd prince who crossed the divide between heaven and earth to seek us out and to find us. Who crossed the river of death to bear our sin and punishment. And back again that we would be raised with him and have life in him. This is the shepherd prince who brings us back to God. And when he brings us back, secondly, we're told, he binds us up. Jesus, our shepherd prince, binds up the injured and the weak, as we read in verse 16. Well, what does this actually mean? In what ways are we injured? Well, the Bible tells us that, that our sin injures us. We are injured by our own sin. We are injured directly and indirectly by the sins of others. And we are injured by nature of living in a world that is chosen to move away from God and from the fullness of his blessing and protection. Physically, physically, in addition to the very real possibilities of suffering violence or abuse or oppression directly from others, or enduring the suffering of a fallen world through disasters and accidents, we know that our own sin, our own addictions, can result in internal stress and high anxiety levels, the loss of sleep, all kinds of problems, and ultimately our sin results in death, not just spiritual death, but physical death as well. Proverbs chapter 28, uh, verse 1, pointing to this uh, anxiety and stress caused by our sin, says, the wicked flees, but no one, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee, though no one pursues. Emotionally, our own sin and the sins of others and the sins uh, of the world can move us toward withdrawal, toward discouragement and depression, toward emptiness and hopelessness. In Psalm 73, the psalmist tells us that it's his envy of the wicked and the healthy and the prosperous that caused his heart to be full of grief and bitterness until he remembered that God is his glory and his portion and his refuge. Spiritually, our sin causes shame and guilt before God and others. Our sin causes separation and distance with God. And of course, we are whole beings, right? And so the spiritual and the emotional and the mental, physical are all intertwined. Uh, in fact, we can say at least at the macro level that all of our physical and emotional injuries and scars stem from the spiritual condition of rebellion against God. The great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, describes our injuries like this. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, join with power. A couple verses later, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Sin injures us, and our healing begins at the cross. We read a few verses from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced 
for our transgressions and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed on the cross and in his suffering. Jesus took our shame and guilt and separation from God on himself while also bearing our emotional grief and physical stress and injury and death. Simply knowing that our guilt and shame are removed in Christ, that our relationship with God is restored in Christ, that death itself has been conquered in Christ, and that Jesus knows and draws near to us in our physical and emotional pain. Simply knowing these things deep in our hearts is utterly transformative. And Jesus continues his healing this binding up work in us now by his spirit, continually applying his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection to our lives by his spirit. Two chapters later in Ezekiel, chapter 36, Ezekiel prophesies this very reality of God's spirit within us. And we can hear some similar themes echoing from chapter 34. God says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, guilt removed. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Jesus continues to bind us up even now by his spirit. He brings us back. He binds us up. And finally, our shepherd prince breaks the yoke of injustice. I just want to say two things here. First, we see that, that our shepherd breaks the yoke of injustice by virtue of the fact that he sees all things. Nothing is hidden from this shepherd's sight. He sees what the fat sheep are doing to the lean sheep. And ultimately, he is the judge who will judge rightly between sheep and sheep, we're told. There will be the self-seeking sheep who want to keep on in their way, shouldering aside the lean sheep and everything will be taken from them. And there will be humble sheep who confess their self-seeking nature, who begin to be healed and transformed by the shepherd, who are willing to live lean now, just as Jesus became the lean sheep for us and was bumped aside. who are willing to live lean now in order to begin to do justice and to love mercy in this world. Second, we see in Ezekiel 34, our Advent hope, that the shepherd prince will come again and break the yoke of injustice for good and make things, all things, right. And now we get to finish our passage back in verse 25. So read with me here. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and banish wild beasts from the land, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their seasons. They shall, shower, they shall be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am the Lord 
when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. This is the promise in which we wait and work and live. One further word of application before we pray. We do only have one shepherd prince. There is only one better David, Jesus, who shepherds our souls in a way that none of us can. But by his grace, he calls us and, and makes us his body. And he actually includes us in his shepherding work. And so as we go about the Christmas and Advent season, can we regularly ask ourselves, who are the people in my life, in my neighborhood, in my family, in this church that I need to be seeking out? Who are the people who, who need binding up? Which, by the way, is, is all of us, um, but some perhaps more acutely at the moment. But who needs binding up and how can I be the hands and feet and voice of Christ for them? And finally, what does it look like for us to care for the lean sheep who may be marginalized or pushed aside in our communities and city. Our shepherd prince is kind to include us in his work. Just as he came after us, he includes us in his work and sends us out. And hopefully to multiply us into hundreds and hundreds of Mr. Peggotty's seeking to bring back and to bind up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are our good shepherd prince who has already come. You have come and searched us out. You have brought us back. You have binded us up. You are binding us up now, and you will bind up all injuries when you return. Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day, and would you help us to wait and to watch and to work and to live in the promise that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.